You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Alhamdulillah, we come out to our segment, which is a Travel Express and Alhamdulillah, Muhammad Ayaz Karim a Production Fundi. Also, you know, he reads the news on many uh, platforms. He produces for many uh, Islamic radio stations. And Alhamdulillah, someone uh, that is uh, really uh, becoming so popular on the platforms of Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Al-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. And, you know, I truly appreciate this young man for coming in and, you know, really adding a value to Islamic radio. Muhammad Ayaz Kareem, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I am an icicle on this fine evening, to be completely honest with you. But uh, inshallah, the weather seems to be easing up, but let's see how it goes because... You know what? Uh, the way things have been going uh, in, over the last few years, we, I feel like we don't have set uh, seasons anymore. Spring, summer, autumn, winter. It's always a lucky packet. <laughs> you know, especially, uh, you know, in, in Durban, especially, we have uh, four seasons in one day. And uh, Alhamdulillah, but uh, generally we are more on the warm side than on the cold side. And, you know, you've uh, been a privilege of uh, traveling the world over. And, you know, the coldness, when you feel this coldness and uh, when you compare it to some of the places you've been, uh, what do you think of, uh, do you wish to, uh, you know, swap places, uh, Muhammad Ayaz? I don't, uh, honestly, I think for anybody who's traveled um, internationally, they, uh, and, and you come from South Africa specifically, you would thank your lucky stars because we are extremely privileged uh, in South Africa. We have, uh, I'd like to say a fair fair mixture of all different types of temperatures, but we don't really experience extremes. So, like, for example, we, we you're never going to experience temperatures like how you might experience in Saudi Arabia, here in South Africa. And on, in the same breath, you're never going to experience um, cold like you might experience in Alaska or Canada, you know? So, um, I feel like sugar, we are fortunate. And uh, compared to a lot of places, we've got it very easy. Well, I'm going to take you on a scenario, and I want you to use your imagination here. Uh, imagine that you're all alone, and uh, you know you got uh, all these cans uh, to make up a soup, and uh, to keep yourself warm. Can you, uh, you know, conjure up something? Well, I, I, I actually, I love soup personally. So when I'm, I mean, I remember I've been doing this for a while now, but since the time, uh, like whenever I needed something hot and something to satisfy me. I actually use, um, you know, uh, two-minute, what's it called? Uh, two noodles. Minutes, uh, not, not noodles, noodles. The, the, the cup, cup, cup of soup, sorry, cup of soup. Okay. So I use the one flavor in particular, but I, then I I, 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 I I add a few things to it, and it honestly is the most delicious thing you will ever try. But I basically, I use the two-minute, uh, the, the cup of soup, the uh, chicken noodle one, and I, what I would do, I then I add a lot of ground black pepper to it. I add uh, one tablespoon of uh, vinegar. I then cut one green chili. I add a little bit of cayenne pepper, and then obviously salt to taste. And honestly, it's so delicious. I, 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 I really, uh, if you are, if you are a lover of chicken noodles, please try this. You will thank me. I'll tell you, Muhammad, that's what I do. I go in for this uh, butternut. Uh, chicken and corn soup and uh, you know i make it with the butternut get it boiled and uh, you know and I put it to blender and get the chicken cooked and uh, you know get out the corns and uh, get them all done like you know how you make your 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 onions and all that 
and yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, just throw in some. But that's uh, now a lot more advanced. What I'm talking <laughs> about is something that's going to take you a few minutes, yeah, yeah. right? No, no, no. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're the lighty, so you you'll go for the quick no, one. No, but I mean, look, I, don't don't uh, don't don't underestimate me. If I I uh, if I need to cook, I can. I just, I mean, like it's not something where uh, I have I have nothing against cooking, and I think for anybody who says that um, complains about not being able to cook, I just feel like it's, it comes down to just laziness because it really is such a simple process. Like my my go-to dish, if I really am hungry and I want to eat something, I make uh, my own version of like a. Uh, Chinese fried rice, although it's not Chinese at all, but I mean, it takes the basic concept of Chinese fried rice. I just like uh, half, you half cook your rice. So you boil your rice, half cook it. And then I cut up green peppers, mushrooms, uh, and onions. I saute my chicken in this, this uh, I mean, the masala, you can use your discretion as to what like you prefer. But for me, it's like your basics, your, your danya jira, you, you use your general stuff and then use like uh, some sort of like uh, marinade. So some sort of like tikka spice or something. And then you let your chicken cook, add your vegetables in, and then throw your rice in. But your rice must be half cooked. I usually do it in a wok so that your rice gets finished uh, in the in the wok. And then I just sprinkle it with some fresh tanya. It's delicious. Hey, you know your stuff. And you know it's important for everyone to know how to cook. And, uh, you know, yeah, be giving you a tip. Easy cooking for men folks. Men folks, you don't know how to cook. Just call Muhammad Ayaz and I. We'll teach you in a jiffy. How to cook, and you know, I think we should do a show on this. Really, the other day I was uh, uh, so less for chocolate cake, and it was so cold. But I'm thinking to myself, there's there's many bakeries close to me, but I was like, I don't want to eat a whole cake, right? I want just enough for myself now. And I was just on YouTube, and I was searching for these. You know, you can make a this cake in a mug. So I I was playing around, but I, I wasn't happy with any of the recipes. I didn't have all the things, so I just did a variation. It took me maximum, I'm going to tell you, maybe 10 minutes. I made the most delicious lava, chocolate lava cake in the microwave. It took two minutes to cook. It took me about five minutes to put it together, and it tasted like something from a five-star restaurant. You know what? I tell you, I'll give you full marks to the, uh, for that, and inshallah, maybe the good thing to think about, and you know, uh, it comes to uh, you know cooking and uh, you know uh, when when I go onto the ships and uh, talk to these uh, captains and they keep on telling me you know Shafat the most important thing on uh, board is the chef and the cook I said what do you mean he said if the cook is not uh, giving us what we want then we suffer for the uh, rest of our, our contract you know some of them sign three months some of them six months contract some people were more than that. But the important person in uh, even in the household is the the cook, uh, Muhammad Ayaz. Yeah, no, I mean, sugar, I, I must say, it, with that regard, I'm blessed. My mother cooks amazingly, but in the same breath, so does my father. So we've I've always grown up around uh, in an environment where everyone has been able to cook, you know. I mean, my father will make the best acne you will ever eat in your life. And coming from a Myanmar, that's saying a lot. Uh, uh, yeah. I- uh, Mol- uh, Molana Isa, he was once uh, the imam of the Grey Street uh, Masjid, and he told me, Shafat, what color acne you want? You want the green one? You want the yellow one? Or you want the red one? We memons make the best acne. I mean, uh, in my case, my mom is memon, so you know what? I even had the best of memon acnes, and uh, as in, in my case, everyone in the household can cook. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we actually... You know, we, we debate, hey, who's going to go to the kitchen? 
and both the kids <laughs> get cooked. So Alhamdulillah, uh, no, no suffering this end. And we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that. Hey, you and I, we can go on uh, chatting about the whole uh, segment. We'll make it a chow, tune and chow segment. But uh, moving on, uh, you know, to our segment of uh, Travel Express. Uh, let's start off with amongst the top five uh, self-driver safari destinations in uh, Southern Africa. Which one offers the most unique and off-the-beat track experience for adventurous travelers? Yeah, you don't have to go all the way to the sand dunes of the Arabian Peninsula. You can do something here. Talk to us, uh, Muhammad Ayaz. Look, I mean, it's a great question, and I do think that it does come down to personal preference. But if I had to choose, uh, when it comes to unique and off-the-beaten-track experiences, I'd have to say that uh, South Lungua National Park in Zambia takes the spotlight. Uh, This park is known for its exceptional walking safaris, which allows you to immerse yourself in uh, the African wilderness on foot, right? You can also explore the trails accompanied by experienced guides, and you get up close to incredible wildlife, including leopards, lions, and wild dogs. Uh, The opportunity to witness these animals in their natural habitat while on foot creates an unmatched sense of connection and adventure. Alhamdulillah. And, you know, you talk talk about the national park and what makes the Huwange, you know, national park in Zimbabwe a hidden gem for self-driver safaris? So this uh, Huwange National Park in Zimbabwe is considered a hidden gem because of its diverse landscape. So you've got like woodlands, grasslands and desert-like areas all in one park. This provides a habitat for abundant wildlife. Uh, you can encounter huge herds of elephants, graceful antelopes, majestic predators like lions and cheetahs uh, while driving through the wilderness. So this is definitely uh, something you consider if this is your thing. And also it's it's close to us, you know, so you're not uh, traveling days and hours. No, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm going to share a story with you. You know, it was uh, quite a few years ago. I actually flew in a plane with, uh, with Junaid Jamshed. You remember sure. Junaid? Yeah, yeah. We yeah, sat, yeah. He, yeah. He sat next to me. He knew me on, on, on first name basis because in uh, 2007 at the uh, DEC, Durban Exhibition Center, uh, I was given the opportunity of hosting him. And you know the stage where he performed from. So I was always doing the emceeing for it. So we got to know each other. I walked him to his hotel, to Hilton. And uh, I remember him telling me uh, one evening, he said, you know, Shafat, uh, can you do me a favor? I said, what favor? Tell me. He said, please tell Hashim Amla not to score hundreds against Pakistan. And I laughed at him. So I said, <laughs> yeah, I will definitely pass on that message. But, uh, you know, to cut a long story short, uh, when we were there, and uh, at the, uh, that time, I think they had the Coca-Cola Dome. I think they changed the uh, name for that now. But yeah. uh, Alhamdulillah, I did my book launch there. Uh, I must give you a copy. You know, I wrote on Ahmadina and uh, golden, yeah, a golden handshake. So uh, I recall now when I was there, and I, we lived at a lodge for about two days. And there were a lot of zebras around. Muhammad Ayaz, you won't believe it. On the day that I was leaving, and a zebra came up right up to me. You know, he, he, took, he put his, like, his nose on my nose. as if to say, I know you're going. Goodbye. And, and yes. someone told me, and, and you know, when I, got, and I, when I got into the car, and I'm saying, you know, that is very unusual. Because I hear... Uh, I, I hear that zebras are very aggressive, but that was such a moment for me. I will never forget it. And that was like the close encounter of another kind. I don't know if you had encounters like that with wild animals, where they just came to you subdued. 
No, to be I, honest, I, I am. I am so. Uh, I have. Uh, I'm not. A, I'm not a huge animal person. I mean, I love uh, uh, like cats in general. So like leopards. I've been to. I've had um, many experiences where there was one uh, a group of friends and I. We went to this. I can't even remember the name of the place. But you basically you book a house, and you so you have this big house, but you're in the middle of nowhere. And there's animals all around you, but there were opportunities where we could, uh, you could literally interact with the cheetahs and the leopards and the lions. And I just love uh, big cats. So, but like when it comes to uh, reptiles, I have an extreme, extreme phobia. Like uh, even just talking about it is making me uncomfortable right now. But it's like they had this huge uh, snake park and they would let this python just on its, like let it go loose. It, there was obviously a, what, like, people like watching it but it's like it's the most terrifying experience like i mean you know in uh, in cape town you've got uh, the tanga junction the the and they've got this big roller coaster mm. called the anaconda so in order to i love roller coasters right so but in order to get on the on this ride you've got to walk through a snake park now these snakes are all obviously in uh, behind glass but it's just glass so so the, for me, just the thought alone is enough. So you can imagine, I actually, it's so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm saying this on radio, but I actually started crying. My friends had to hold my hands and I walked with my eyes closed just so I could get through because I obviously wanted to go on the ride. But just that sight alone, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you uh, how you feel about snakes, but I, my my phobia is so severe. I know, uh, inshallah, Allah will never put me in a situation where I have to come in contact with a reptile because I will probably die from the heart attack before anything else. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I'll tell you something about it. I, I'm living virtually in a, in a jungle here, uh, you know, right near the coastline, one minute away. But uh, half of my land is pure jungle, you know, trees and so forth. So you can imagine the amount of snakes uh, that I have in my area. And I, 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 I will never come visit you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I wait, just... I'll tell you, the snakes come into the, uh, into the pantry and they'll be in the garden and then the cats will catch a snake and bring it right into the lounge or the sitting room and uh, there they will be saying there's a gift for you there's a nice uh, green garden snake for you Allah, but i will die i, I just I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't i just like the thought of it is enough i read the story uh it was so terrifying there was a uh, a guy in now australia is famous for their huge snakes and their spiders and their scorpions you know so it's a place where it's very common for the people there and uh, this guy moved into a new house and every night uh, when he would go to sleep he was uh, he would have this dream of this big like alien black alien coming and touching him by his legs and he got so scared uh, but he just he said no it's just his imagination and the one night he woke up in the middle of the night and this big black thing was lying on top of him there was a snake in the ceiling that was growing so big it got so heavy that it broke through the ceiling and collapsed on him can you imagine i think i would die come back die come back die come back mm. i don't know what i i just oh i'm actually just so uncomfortable just even to, but can you imagine that like sure the trauma it's, mm. it's, it's, it's sure. Yeah, I tell you, but uh, sometimes the yeah the domestic will say, "Hey, there's a snake there, a snake there looking at me and so forth." So what I do when I get there to the snake and uh, I say, "A snake, move away! I don't want to kill you. I don't want to kill you." But, but you're fine with it. You don't. You're not. You're not. You don't have uh, like no, a no, 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 no phobia. So what I do, I generally take a sheep dip and uh, you know I will uh, sheep dip and I'll just spray on it. And it doesn't like the smell, so they generally go away. And uh, most of them happen to be, you know, they say uh, harmless garden snakes and so. Yeah, but for me, it's the visuals, like the actual the 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 look of the snake. It's so, it's probably the ugliest thing in my to me personally. So it's like it's so terrifying. Anything. 
it's so terrifying because like now um i'm probably gonna have trouble sleeping tonight honestly <laughs> like it's that's so severe I, I don't know. I don't know uh, where this irrational phobia comes from, but it's something that has affected me my, my whole life. And my mother has the same uh, phobia. So I, clearly it's something I inherited from her. Definitely. Uh, it's in the genes also. But as we move on, uh, you know, uh, uh, where you need to live, I'll tell you, there's one country that has no snake at all. Can you guess that country? I have no idea. Well, you have to go there. Go to Dublin. Go to Ireland. Really? No, no snake. snake- Nothing, nothing. No snakes at all. Can you believe it? Sure, I can't actually. It's like surprising, yeah. yeah. My uh, late uncle lived there, uh, Dr. Zafrullah Dular Khan, and he was an anesthetist and pastor at a young age of 41. But I remember him telling me, you know, Shafat, I enjoyed my cricket in the uh, the fields of Ireland. But do you know that country has no snakes? And I said, what? No snakes? Hmm. But, you know, we uh, we surrounded. So just think island tonight. No snakes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Go island. Well, uh, as you know, we be talking about island. Uh, you know that uh, the Irish and the Englishmen and the Welsh and the, you know, name the Scottish. I don't think they see eye to eye, but all of them have a common enemy. And the enemy happens to be the Englishmen. Yeah. yeah that's all because look at tribalism amongst them. Uh, yeah. Muhammad Ayaza. But as we move on, we look at this topic as the UK uh, visa fees are set to increase uh, significantly. How might this impact international travelers planning to uh, visit the UK? And are there any potential implications for tourism and travel between the UK and other countries? So, look, uh, this increase in UK visa fees, well, indeed, it will have various implications for international travelers and tourism. Firstly, uh, the higher visa fees might deter potential visitors from considering the UK at all, right, as a travel destination due to the increased financial burden. Uh, This will potentially lead to a decline in tourism uh, for certain countries. Moreover, countries that have historically had close ties with the UK, such as uh, former colonies, may view this change as a deterrent because... It's a sign of, and it's a signal of unwelcomeness. Uh, it could impact the perception of the UK as a friendly and accessible destination, and it might have repercussions for travel and tourism between the UK and these countries. I mean, I, I, I say might, but it's most definitely going to have uh, uh, an impact and repercussions. You know, I'm thinking uh, whilst you're talking about UK and uh, you know United Kingdom in general. If you and I went there, you know, we won't we won't suffer for chow because everywhere you go, there's a a Pakistani restaurant there, there's a Bangladeshi in the corner there, and you know, you still, you, hey, chicken tikka is around, rogni naan there, or there's a, you know, paneer you want, or you want your soji, or soji soup, I mean, uh, soji, uh, uh, you know, sweet and all that. They they have it all. So, yeah, you know, I've been to London, so uh, like I, I, there's a there's a huge uh, population of Indians in in the uh, in the UK, so you definitely you feel like I mean parts of London like Southall for example it feels so it feels more like India than London to be honest. Uh, absolutely, and uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, our people are there, and a lot of South Africans are living in that part of the world, and uh, really, uh, did they go in there for the British pound and uh, you know? How did they take that weather? The weather, which is really, you know, horrendous. Uh, I know, you know, for me, the worst, uh, my least favorite uh, type of weather is when it's uh, a cool day, but it's overcast. When the sky is overcast, it just, 
it's, it's very reflective of my mood. My mood tends to reflect what the weather is, uh, what the weather is on a current day. So yeah, I, I honestly, I don't know how those people aren't constantly suffering from depression. I tell you, we're motoring, yeah. We're really motoring on our show and really enjoying each other's company, and uh, you know what, uh, adding value to uh, Travel Express with a lot of uh, garnish with it, with the chows, yeah. I'm sure yeah. people are enjoying that. And Alhamdulillah, I mean, you know, one thing about uh, food, it is a, um, uh, you know, it actually breaks the ice. And if anyone accepts your invitation, and if they eat your food, you know what they're telling you, Muhammad Ayas. They're telling you, I trust you implicitly because I know you didn't poison me. Yeah. You can think of that. <laughs> that's that's very true. I mean, it's definitely a unifying factor. Uh, I, you know, I've been privileged enough to like eat lots of different types of food. But one of like the one of those uh, experiences that really sticks out to me when I was in uh, Dubai, we were invited to this this man's uh, house in Al Ain. And, um, you know, Arab food is like a, it's a, a quiet taste. I was like, I mean, uh, we, we are familiar with a lot of it, but I mean, a lot of it is different from what we eat typically as Indians. And uh, they are so hospitable. Arabs in general, I feel like are extremely hospitable. But this man put on such a spread for us with such a variety. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's the greatest thing to experience somebody else's culture. You know, especially when people are so warm and welcoming. Now, you know, something I learned from Sheikh Ahmadi, that Rahimullah, and uh, one thing he taught me, he said, you see, brother, uh, Shafat, and they call me better, not brother, my better. Now, you know what? When you eat by Arab's house and you make sure you burp, I said, but Sheikh, I can't eat so much like them. He said, burp, even it means you're drinking that carbonated drink and you burp loudly. The louder your burp, the bigger the smile. Now, <laughs> in our context, <laughs> if you and I had to belch and hit out a big burp, they say, oh, the water the look you'll get. They say, these people got no manners, uh, Muhammad Ayaz. It just goes to show the cultural differences, huh? because, I mean, there's so many things that are considered uh, complementary in one culture, which might be considered to be lack of uh, manners in another. And it just goes to show that we, uh, we can be narrow-minded at times, because people just... You think about your own bubble and your own experience, and you base everything off of that. And I think that is probably the most flawed approach to life in general. Yeah, uh, maybe we are so captured or we are so intoxicated that, you know, we are prim and proper in the way we eat with a fork and knife. And uh, then, uh, you know, some of us even enjoy cucumber sandwich with the salt and pepper. I don't know. <laughs> That that wouldn't appeal to me. What about you, Mama? I, I love cucumber, so uh, I'm gonna. You know, I think the whole uh, the whole argument about uh, table etiquette and cutlery and all of that. I mean, if you think about it, like uh, from just a practical point of view, it's absolutely so impractical. Uh, just the the way uh, fine dining is, like the norms and mores of fine dining. Whereas uh, eating with your fingers, besides the fact that they are scientifically proven health benefits from the enzymes released in your fingers, which is how we eat according to the Sunnah, which the West took 1,400 years to realize. But like, I mean, it's uh, it, it's it's absurd that somebody feels like, uh, like, you know, for example, eating prawns, right? Eating prawns is something where, I mean, if you're not eating with your fingers, really, it's such a mission. 
Yeah. Yet, uh, these people would rather go through this process of trying to peel a prawn with a fork and knife. It's just absurd to me, really. Hey, yeah, as you said, uh, for me, no, I can't I can't take prawns and this and that. Uh, but uh, I know Ashe again, I always bring him as a source of reference. Uh, Ashim already loved his prawns. Whenever, you know, I should take him to a local restaurant in the alley. We could come quite often to our uh, studios there in the arcade when we were here. I was in Durban. And uh, yeah, I so take him there, and he used to relish his prawns, you know, with the sometime with the bed of rice and so forth. But I should just be a spectator, and or maybe I'll order a king clip with the bed of rice, and you know. Are you allergic, or you just don't like it? Uh, it's just like I think I'm allergic to it. When I have it, uh, my lips will twitch or something like that. So uh, okay, I just that's delicious. Like I can't. Uh, usually, people who don't eat prawns are allergic because the taste. You can't argue with the taste. Yeah, so I'll just say, yeah, I won't give you the other stories of the prawn. But anyway, we'll move on here and uh, we'll talk about uh, South Africa has been voted the best country and Cape Town, the best city in the world by readers in the UK. Now, how do you think uh, these accolades will impact on the South Africa's tourism, uh, Mohamed Ayaz? And what makes uh, South Africa and Cape Town stand out as top tourist destinations? Okay, so these accolades are undoubtedly a significant boost for our tourism industry. Uh, the recognition from the readers in the UK, which is a, a key market for South African tourism, is likely uh, going to attract a lot more visitors from the UK and other countries who value the opinions of fellow travellers, right? So being voted the best country and having Cape Town named as the best city in the world, it creates an extremely positive image and it enhances South Africa's reputation as a must-travel destination. Already they are in the... Uh, the uh, position of uh, having a, a much stronger currency. So that already is a big thumbs up and a, a plus for them. But I mean, we've got so much to offer. The, the dreamy safari locations, the pristine beaches, uh, enchanting mountains, romantic like uh, scenery. We offer a diverse range of experiences. Uh, Cape Town in particular uh, captivates with its picturesque beauty uh, and iconic landmarks, like you've got the Table Mountain. There's always warm hospitality because we are generally considered a very friendly and hospitable people. And uh, these accolades definitely, it reinforces the unique appeal of South Africa in Cape Town as a top-tier tourist destination. Yeah, absolutely. Cableway and, uh, you know, I don't know, I was just talking uh, with another Mufti the other day, and I said, uh, Mufti, you live in Cape Town. Did you ever get stuck in the Cableway and on a windy 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 day he said don't talk about it people have been stranded there what about you uh, Muhammad Ayaz how did you enjoy the cableway up table mountain I mean I honestly uh, it's been so long the last time I took that cable car and I feel like it's been over 10 years uh, I feel like a lot of those uh, more touristy uh, locations specifically in Cape Town have uh, become so I'm going to just be honest here, but it have become so absurdly priced and so uh, exorbitant because you are appealing to Europeans and Americans who, for them, like, what $10 for them, you must remember, is 200 rand for us, right? So, uh, and those things typically cost a lot more than 200 rand. So it's just, I think there's a lot to experience in our country. But for those of us who love you, we know where we can get bang for our buck and you know where to avoid. 
I, I think most South Africans have had the experience of Table Mountain, but it's not something you're going to choose to go and do now. Because at the end of the day, like I said, they're not really appealing to us as local tourists. They are appealing to a certain uh, demographic. Yeah, you make a very, a very valid point indeed. And, you know, government should be thinking for its uh, people, especially those young people. Some of them never even flew in an aeroplane. Some of them don't even know what a sea looks like and all that. That should be the government's duty to allow its citizens to enjoy a beautiful country like ours. Uh, but uh, uh, leadership doesn't have that vision, Muhammad um, Ayaz. But let's move out, fly overseas and uh, discuss this. You know, we're going to the Middle East. And uh, despite the security concerns and travel and uh, advisories that a great number of adventurous uh, tourists are now uh, visiting Iraq to explore, you know, its ancient cities and uh, experience its culture. Now, Mohammed Ayaz, how do you think uh, this increase in tourism will impact on Iraq's economy and image on the global stage? And what steps uh, is the government taking to ensure the safety and the comfort of tourists? I mean, the increase in tourism to Iraq, I think it's an amazing thing. Uh, Despite security concerns, this has a really huge potential to positively impact uh, the country's economy and its global image as a whole. Uh, More adventurous tourists visit Iraq's ancient cities and experience its culture. Because you must remember, there's so much rich history and culture. uh, And they are contributing to diversifying this country's uh, oil-dependent economy. because. That is their main source of uh, uh, like monetary like income, right? It comes from oil. So if they can diversify that and open up tourism, it uh, bodes well for just the economy and the people as a whole. Additionally, their presence, uh, it sends a message to the world that Iraq is regaining stability and can be seen as a safe destination for travelers. Uh, the government is actively working to improve the infrastructure. They're building new hotels. Uh, they're refurbishing tourist sites. Uh, and they are uh, making all the efforts to ensure safety of visitors. So these efforts will, inshallah, uh, attract more tourists, and it will change the perception of Iraq as an arena of conflict, uh, which is unfortunately a narrative that's been pushed for so long by the West. But uh, I think what's happening is that the world is opening their eyes, and people are seeing through the, the propaganda narratives. Now, that's a good point. Uh, you use the term propaganda narratives and, you know, uh, reparations for Iraq, you know, that should be imminent uh, coming from where those people that, uh, you know, look for weapons of mass destruction. Then it's, had, never gonna uh, <laughs> it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. I mean, <laughs> I like, you know, with this talk of reparations is such a polarizing question because uh, it, it, it's like I feel like. Like, yeah, OK, we're talking in recent history. Yes, definitely. Uh, Iraq is deserving of it. But I mean. You, uh, the history of human beings uh, in a whole, it's like we, slavery has been a very much intrinsic part of our history for thousands of years. So if you start playing this game of reparations, I feel like uh, everybody is going to be paying everybody in perpetuity. Now, I'm not justifying colonization and what was done, but you must remember that, um, yes, as Indians, we suffered like a fair amount. Uh, under the uh, the British, but they were also, and we always talk about like you look, Africans were colonized and they were used as slaves, but they were also uh, the amount of white slaves that they were in Africa prior to uh, more well-known slaves are just as significant. So that's why I say it is a vicious cycle and circle where we will be going round and round because everybody 
colonize somebody at some point or the other in our history. So I think, I mean, I'm more, uh, I'm more in line with the argument that, like, you know what, the, uh, we learn from our past and we learn from our mistakes so that we don't repeat them, but we can't continuously harp on what was done to our great, great, great grandfathers in hopes of uh, a, quick, a quick cash grab, you know? Because mm. that's just not productive and it's not actually realistic. <laughs> Yeah, you know, in, in the case of Iraq, I mean, a, a powerfully functioning country was, uh, you know, bombed into Stone Age, uh, and, and the leadership taken out of uh, uh, the equation for absolutely no reason because he wanted to change the equation of uh, the U.S. dollar, you know, the the oil. He didn't want it to, to trade. He said, okay, I'd rather get into euro and something. The same thing happened to uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi because of the, uh, uh, you know, he wanted to change uh, the exchange rate from the petrodollar to another exchange rate, and he was taken out of the equation. So, you know, you, it's, it's a deeper story, and we can have our stories yeah, on that. The hegemony has been around for so long that it's it's like nobody, you can't justify what America has done, but they have abused their power. But as we see now, that the, the trend is moving towards um, a weakening of the hegemony. So I feel like we need to focus on what's happening right now and inform yourself enough so that you are, at the right place in the right time, making the right decisions. Because, I mean, look, with this, uh, I'm so uh, uh, anxious about this upcoming BRICS summit. I really hope that uh, something meaningful comes out of it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the last laugh is on, uh, on uh, I don't know who, because uh, the money that is being floated around is a fiat money, it's paper money. They don't even have the value, they don't have the value of uh, the gold, that promissory note of gold is nowhere to be seen. Is this fictitious Money, like, all right, we won't get into that. Let's end off with this topic because I noticed we've uh, gone, uh, we, we've uh, exceeded our time. But uh, I just want to do this topic about, you know, how has the recent uh, snowfall in Johannesburg impacted on flight operations, uh, particularly for uh, a budget airline like Flight, uh, you know, Safe. And, uh, yeah. you know, they were ice, uh, icing or, you know, as you said, you're like an icicle, icing on the wings of that aircraft. That's frightening, uh, Mohammed Ayas. Yeah, so uh, this recent snowfall in Johannesburg has led to lots of flight delays uh, for FlySafe. The icing on the wings of the aircraft due to the current weather conditions uh, resulted in delays for flights departing from Oartambo. Um, they've issued statements uh, and utilized social media to inform customers about the delays. But the airline is actively addressing the situation and they're taking the necessary precautions to ensure the safety of its passengers. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, this is something that really is not. I mean, I don't. I, I don't feel like anyone can blame them. This is not something that's in their control. You know what I'm saying? Thinking about it, definitely not in the control. Hey, and you know, when I sit in the plane, I always like to sit by uh, the wings and look at the yeah. wings. Imagine I saw this wing can't open and close. I say, hey, what's going? What's going to happen? We can't take but off. I mean, we can't. Imagine. I don't think that's something that any South African airline considers. You know, like that situation. So it's really, it is really an extenuating circumstance. It's not something that uh, historically we've ever had to deal with. So when it comes to addressing it, I feel like they've done their best. They are trying their best to mitigate it. But it's like we also in the same breath can't fault them for not having the adequate uh, like um, procedures in place because it's not something we've ever had to deal with before. Absolutely. And as, uh, you know, we... This call, I hope you're going to warm up uh, this evening, uh, Mohammed Ayaz. Perhaps go and make one of your another concoction of that uh, beautiful soup that you uh, will have and uh, keep you warm. 
And uh, inshallah, uh, thank you once again and jazakallah khaira for being with us on uh, Travel Express. And uh, you know what? Uh, and uh, you have added value to it. And I really enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, maybe your parting words before I let you go. No, I mean, as always, you um, you always brighten my mood and you give me so much food for thought. And uh, I just, I also, I love these conversations with you. And especially when you share your anecdotes from your long and like really interesting, uh, you know, you've got such a, you've got such great stories to tell because you've had such a full life. So I, it's always uh, eye-opening and enlightening for me. Well, I know who's who in the zoo, Muhammad Ayaz Karim. <laughs> And I, and I also know you as a budding, uh, you know, broadcaster, as a, a, a powerful producer, and you have a greater future ahead. And inshallah, yeah, uh, as you said, that acne, when dad makes it, eat another plate for me. And inshallah, I'll be talking to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam. Yes, I would like to thank uh, Lucolo uh, for great engineering uh, this evening. Yes, uh, keep locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming and a lovely yeah. nasheed interspersed from the team and I till we meet you again. We bid you, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.